HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you pre-taped. Pre-taped, right? Styles are coming to you pre-taped on the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, if you happen to have gotten our message that we're pre-taped today, you can still call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Uh, today we have a very special uh, guest in the studio. We have uh, Lena Kwok, who is the founder of Cup for Cup. Uh, gluten-free, like kind of like the best known like so for years for those of you who have celiac or perhaps you are one of those people that for some reason I don't understand just reduces your gluten intake even though you have no problem with it um you you know one of the issues has been that there's been no very good kind of uh straight replacement for wheat flour that works in you know a variety of different recipes and one of the reasons is because wheat flour is kind of a miracle so uh you know, uh, Lena was at, uh, well, I'll let her tell the story. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Hey, how you doing? And, st- of course, we got Stasi yeah, in, in here, and we got we got uh, Jack over in the booth, and we have yep. Lindsay, actually, Lena's uh, publicist. So why don't you tell me a little story about uh, how Cup for Cup came to exist? And correct me if I'm wrong, it's like the only decent one on the market, right? <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that, but uh, we definitely focus on quality control, so... Mm-hmm. All right. So give, give me a little bit of the story. So I actually interned at the French Laundry uh, right out of culinary school. And uh, one of the things that I noticed was that the chefs work about 14 to 12 hours a shift. And so these are really creative uh, creative individuals. And um, they had no time to experiment with all of their innovative thoughts. And so I wrote out a proposal at the end of my internship to create a position, R&D chef at the French Laundry. And the chef at the time, Corey Lee, he actually uh, took this concept and took it to Thomas, and I was accepted as the R&D chef. And from there, I did a lot of dietary restrictions for uh, diabetic uh, 
dishes and then also gluten-free and vegans. And the one dish that really resonated well with the chefs were the gluten-free bread. And so from there, uh, we started developing products because people were coming in and crying over pieces of bread uh, because they haven't had it for seven years. And um, with about a year and a half, we dove into this project and started developing a gluten-free flour line. Nice. So now, I think something that people might not understand, uh, I mean, probably listeners to this show understand, but like how much care, um, you know, restaurants, you know, at this level take with people who have, everyone knows that chefs hate when people have restrictions, dietary restrictions. Every chef hates it when someone has a dietary restriction, right? They hate it. They hate it, but you know, it's one of these things, there's a, there's a divide with chefs. I feel like there are the chefs who, you know, it is it is their style and they're as artists, you know, they feel so passionate about what they serve, they want to change anything because it is their piece of work. However, there are other group of chefs who understand also there's, it's an experience, you know, and everyone has a preference as an individual. So who are you to also tell an individual how to eat something, you know, and so there's two schools thought, I don't believe one are, is better than the other. However, you know, for Thomas, it's really about how a guest takes in that experience and he wants to make it everything he doesn't want to dilute anything just because you may have a restriction uh so he wants to elevate that whole experience for you right i mean i think one of the reasons why a lot of chefs hate people with not hate people it's very it's very badly put one of the one of the (laughs) reasons that they 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 get all hot and bothered when someone has a dietary restriction is and this is what i think people don't understand is that they are worried It's, it's not as i mean sometimes it's just ego but uh a lot of times i think the chef is worried that the person's gonna it's the same as when someone asks for their steak well done. The chef just worries that this person is actually not going to have a good experience at the restaurant because now the chef has to cook something that the chef doesn't like or chef doesn't respect or chef doesn't know whether the quality is the same and they want the quality to be as good uh, no matter what they put out. They want to be proud of what they put out and they want all the customers to have you know the best possible experience and I think it's the nervousness that they're not going to be able to do that in the face of certain dietary restrictions that gets a lot of a lot of chefs bent like a pretzel, but the you know the fact of the matter is is that the in the more kind of high end, more expensive restaurants are, the more typically they'll bend over backwards to try to accommodate this stuff if they can. Absolutely, and you know I think I I completely understand how chefs take this as they want to guide someone's experience to the level that they understand as experts what's going to be the best way to present one dish, but at the same time those people who have certain you know specific needs or you know they don't particularly like certain things they're not going to allow themselves experience that the way maybe a chef would like and so rather than fighting that i think it's just give people what they want you know they're coming in to have a certain level of expectation when they sit down you know they're paying for their meal and i really believe that you know you have to accommodate people as they come in because they are your guests you know now when you're when you're trying to develop something that is uh, gluten free flour that uh, works for uh, kind of any application, right? I mean, w- there's a, there's a lot of issues with that because a lot of recipes, right, use one aspect of wheat flour, and a lot of recipes use different aspects of wheat flour, and uh, v- very few very few things, uh, you know, act like 
like wheat flour in every kind of situation. So how did you how did you go about taking up this kind of a no? How, how did you approach this kind of a problem? God, I'm so glad you brought this up. I can give you a hug because it's so hard to really explain to people, you know, that flour is such a complex single ingredient. You know, if anything, because of my research development through this, I've had such a deeper um, appreciation for flour and its performance, but. Yes, there are different types of wheat flour that people don't really always consider. People always call in about cup for cup. Can it make bread? And, and, and yes, you could formulate you know, a recipe using that ingredient, but it's not going to perform the best. Bread flour will because it has higher gluten content. And even all-purpose flour is different from bread flour. And, and so I think it's very hard for people to understand that there are there are different applications for just regular flour that, you know, with cup for cup, what I really focused on was what were people missing the most from baking was cookies, quick breads, um, pies, biscuits. I felt like that was what the home cook was looking for. So I really needed to develop something that was more like pastry flour, if anything. However, able to perform in different recipes as a multi-purpose. Right, because none of those applications rely heavily on gluten. In fact, a lot of those, a lot of those applications, people try to shunt out the gluten in, you know, in in a lot of ways. So those are kind of good, good applications, but um, even... Frying also, it works better with uh, like tempura batters because there's no gluten that's going to cause it to be a soggy fry batter. Do you like tempura? I I don't me personally I don't like to eat a lot of fried but uh, I definitely like a crispy yeah I mean that's the thing I think uh, tempura I'm going to get yelled at by somebody but like it's one of those things that I think that you know every everyone thinks it's the most like like many like uh, very tweaked out Japanese techniques people think that it's kind of the height of the fry and I just I don't think that's necessarily the case I mean I think that. I think that, you know, I've had some very good tempura chefs make stuff for me. And I'm like, yes, this is good. Do I think this is the height of fried? No. No, I like the shatter, like light fry. If Sometimes I don't even like a batter, actually. I like it when it really is a very thin shattered fry. If you're talking about specific frying methods. Yeah, yeah. So tempura is not my favorite because it might be a little thicker. But I've had a wonderful tempura before. Yeah, yeah, it's good. But then it's like also like you need to eat it instantaneously. They under fry it so it's so free and blonde and it's like you know it's whatever I don't want to uh, don't, don't get me started don't get me started so the uh, no but the so but like a lot of the, the applications that you say and I think this is the way to hit things that people miss the most because a lot of people they're going to bring up bread the most difficult I mean the most difficult but even bread you know it's one of those things that Ah, it takes such technique and years of experience to make good bread, you know. Um, and I, again, it's not something that we're not working on. It's, it's going to be a lot more work than just pastry flour. Right. Now, aside from the gluten, the actual starches, like, in other words, wheat starch works differently from other kinds of starches and f- for many reasons, right? One is because um, of the different kind of the, the actual texture of the flour when it's ground, the gran- granule structure, right? And then there's how the how the actual structure is. Now, the reason you can't, let's say, just do all rice flour is because it acts totally differently, and it will be like a rice bun or a rice noodle, which is not what people are looking for, correct? Completely different. You know, and I, I'll walk through the ingredients. So we have cornstarch, which really acts as, uh, when you think about flour and its performance in a recipe, it's a filler. You know, it really is the body of... Um, 
the body of the recipe in a baking uh, formula. And then you have rice flours that is going to provide more of a textural difference because cornstarch is just too fluffy. And then the other ingredients are really for elasticity purposes. You know, how do you bind? Because that's what flour does as well. It binds and it will be able to, within the baking process, how steam and everything works, hold its shape. And so that's really how the formula goes. So what are the, what are the other ones? You have cornstarch, you have rice. What else you got in here? We've got um, tapioca, right. potato starch, xanthan gum, and milk powder, which is another thing that is really important to point out. It adds tenderness. A lot of other gluten-free flours, they have eliminated dairy because they want to... It's a larger market when you do dairy-free, gluten-free, everything-free, you know? Sure. But for, for us, when we decided this, if I took out the milk powder, it was going to be uh, less performing flour. And but it's so, milk solids, right? So milk, there's no la- lactose in it. No, there is. It's, really? a, it's a skim milk powder, you know, and um, it's very crucial to the baking process. It will create a tender crumb. No, milk proteins are awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really are. Um, but, okay, so you have the, the potato, which swells fast, right? Yes. And then you had, uh, what was the other one? Is tapioca. Tapioca. Tapioca is weird. You ever cook with straight tapioca? That's a strange... It is, but it does give that... Choing, choing, yep. choing. Yeah, that stuff's no joke. No joke. I mean, have you ever had that uh, Brazilian cheese bread? No, I've had Portuguese, like, corn cheese bread, like broa. No, it's um, I'm blanking out what it's called, but uh, it's this. It's made with the cassava roots, so tapioca. Oh yeah, I've had that stuff. And um, it's delicious, but it's fried and it's all chewy inside. Yeah, you know? no, that stuff's good. I used to have to when I was doing uh, work on uh, puffed stuff, you know, years ago for the blog. I was doing a lot of tapioca doughs, and man, they're a pain. Especially like they're just like really a pain. They're really a pain because you also have to heat them up, and then you're working with like glop, and then. Man. Yeah. Well, so heating up, you bring a, a good point. So when you're doing um, when you're doing a dough that doesn't have any uh, gluten in it, I mean, one of the things that you know we always used to do is just pre-cook some of the starch because uh, you know when you're working without the gluten, things tend to be kind of like a sandy agglomeration of things. They don't tend to dough up on you. Um, they just don't. So, like, the question is: is do you have some pre-cooked in here as well, without telling me like how it works, or is it were you able to do it without any pre-cooked? Stuff? No pre-cooked, because one of the things that was difficult with this process, because I, when we developed the French Laundry, you know, French Laundry really sourced from smaller, you know, farmers. Um, just our resources are more, you know, local and. For us to go out to a market and provide nationally, we really need to start uh, digging into resources that we could find large volumes for. And so pre, pre-cooked starches, it's, we don't work with that. Yeah, because they're easier to work with, right? They are easier to work with, and they're a little more stable. However, the volume of it, it's just not there. Now, I see you have one here called Wholesome that says it's dairy-free. Uh, it's a dairy-free product. What do you have in, in to make up for the dairy in that sucker? So the Wholesome Flour is actually our first um, response back to the public. People are really looking for non-GMO. And what we found was it's really in the category, they're missing whole wheat flour. And so this is a solution for the whole wheat flour, nutrient-dense, performing. Um, So no milk powder, but what we did add was ground flax seeds. And so flax seeds, you know, with a little bit more fat, it adds a little texture and also creates that, um, I guess, textural difference in the quick breads and pastries right. it does absorb a little bit more water like whole wheat flour does so oh flaxseed likes to absorb water that's that's for sure yeah yeah flaxseed uh i did a oh man i don't want to get into flaxseed 
I mean, presumably it's not like a lot, a lot of flaxseed, right? No, but it definitely has its share. So it has equal parts of uh, fiber as whole wheat and then also has uh, omega fatty acids contributed by the flaxseeds and uh, rice bran as well. Did you know that some people like soak and grind up flaxseeds and eat that gummy pulpy stuff on purpose just like as is? Did you know that? So I was going through a week of like healthy after after uh, eating too much and I was going to grind up some I was like, oh, I'll just throw in flax seeds into my smoothie. Uh, don't ever do any more than uh, two tablespoons. No, I mean, it's just freaking like it's a freaking gummy nightmare. I mean, it's a, it's a natural, yes, yes, fiber, hydrocolloids, it's all great and stuff, but it's just man. That is some oh. man. So you know, how many how many uh, how many flowers do you have in the line now? You have uh, so we have the uh, cup for cup original line. Yep. So it has a pancake waffle, pizza, chocolate brownie, and then our wholesome line, which is actually in stores now at William Sonoma. It is we're going to look to extend it and release two other products behind it. Okay, now. You just came last night from uh, Del Posto. Mark Ladner is a big f- fan of being able to make all of his pastas gluten-free. And he uses Cup for Cup. Which one does he use? The OG? Yes, the yeah. OG. Yeah, he uses the OG stuff. Now, he actually tasted you out last night on all of, all the pastas, right? It was amazing. And, I, you know, I had heard about Del Posto about a year and a half. And just all of the press they've received with the gluten-free pastas, you know, I've, I hadn't had a chance to meet Mark. And, you know, I ran into you guys last weekend uh, out of, you know, coincidence. Yeah, by the way, we judged a pie. I think we talked about it. We judged no, a pie. didn't talk about it. We, judged, we didn't talk about no. it? So uh, Nastasha and I went out to uh, UCLA, and we were judging a, not a pie-eating contest, a pie-making contest, right? Pie-making contest. Two people, we're not going to say anything positive or negative about the pies, (laughs) because, you know, just in case. Nobody nobody Just in case. Well, but, yeah, they're like school, that was like school years over. These these kids, they're like freshmen, sophomores. They're they're not listening to this crap. They don't know. (laughs) But, like, uh, so we had to eat, like, something like 22 pies. 22 pies. 22 pies. You know, and you know, thankfully, like you can have gluten if, if you you know you happen to have created the like the one kind of gluten free like you know replacement flour, but you actually can consume the gluten. So we were eating these pies, and uh, for some reason we didn't like the like the bet like one of the best pie crusts there. Like I don't know, like I was my face was buried, and I don't know what the hell happened. But you know, you had advocated for this. Oh, I stuck up for them. I totally did, and I got chewed out. But, uh. but it was totally, you were totally right. And then later, you were like, "I can't believe it." And I was like, "What? What?" And then this, Nastasha never is going to freaking let me forget the fact that I let. First of all, here's what happened. Like, okay, 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 okay. So they have this class. What's the name of the class at UCLA? Do you remember? Ah. Uh, well, I know the event was the food and science, but I don't know what the name of the class was. Yeah, Professor Robot out there. Yeah. Has, she has a class and she teaches it. And so, you know, one of the things she does is, you know, you're supposed to, like, learn some science, like, come up with an experiment, and it's based around making apple pie, right? Which is great. It gets the kids, you know, really excited about making pies. It's the first time diving into it. Yeah, but all of these freaking kids, like not enough salt in the crust. Oh my Jesus. Not enough salt in the crust. People, when you make pie, put salt in the freaking crust. I was like, how much unsalted like crust did you have to eat? Because I think like it's like, I think this is I was yelling at someone else, like all the chefs, we were talking about this before, all the chefs are like, meh meh, use unsalted butter, right? Unsalted butter, meh meh. But the problem is, is then like people who like maybe like they use a recipe that was, was written for salted butter, they don't taste the crust or whatever. It doesn't have any salt in it. I really think someone has to publish an article about how a chef's pinch technically is, I think, about a tablespoon. 
if you, if you think about it, and that's why people always, when they say a pinch, they take maybe half a teaspoon and they, they throw it in. See, that's the thing. People just need to taste the some some, thing and see whether or not like it tastes good. People don't know. Here's another thing. Like, uh, I, you know, as m- any of you know, like the, I read that book recently, Sugar, Salt, Fat, and I have some huge issues with that book. Huge issues with that book. Written, get to the- written by Moss, right? Because one of the things is he's like, do, do you know that do you know that corporations try to make their food taste good? Da-da! You know what I mean? I'm like, what? What? And my, my point is, is that especially I think he falls flat in the anti-salt stuff because you cannot make decent baked goods or decent ice creams without salt. And like people don't know how much salt is in a decent dough. Like when I was growing up, McGee told me there's a there's a famous uh, bread book writer who used to cook at one of the schools and was at one of the bakeries out in San Francisco. I forget his name. He came out with a book maybe four years ago. And he says that over the past maybe even 12 to 15 years, like salt levels have gone up in all of the artisan breads, at least in the West Coast. Because I used to, you know, do like maybe like a percent and a half. People are closer to 2% on bread. Really? Yeah. Dry weight basis. Dry weight basis. Flour weight basis. You know, and so... You know, I'm still you know back at Weasley one and a half. But you don't need that much in a pie crust, but something, some salt. Well, you have to think about you know flavors. Is it's the same thing as com- composing music. If you were to only use one note, how flat would that be? But if you add different beats to it, it's really going to accent like accentuate the sound of it and really focus. And the same thing with flavor. So I actually had a Del Posto, this great. Um, it was a dried apricot sorbet, and he had he had dusted it with a little salt on top. And it just brightens everything. So you really need that offset flavor to yeah. really highlight the dish. Yeah, like unless unless you have salt <laughs> sensitive hypertension, like salt's your good buddy for flavor. You know what I mean? <laughs> so anyway, so like they undersalted their crust, they undercooked their crust in general, right? They did, but you know, I will have to say it was a really fair stab at everything. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so what happened is this tell one. Tell the grandma story. This, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Stop, like, <laughs> tell the grandma story. So like, so, I rooted for you guys. I just want to let you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So here's what happens. So this one, this one crew was working on uh, on the, cooking the apples. That was their shtick. The thickness calipers of the apple slice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cooking with calipers was the name of their 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 shtickamajig there, right? And so they're like, okay, so they. Um, they're like, well, our project wasn't about the crust. So for the crust, I just did grandma's crust. I called my grandma like a real – I asked, is this a real live grandma or is this some sort of bull crap you're trying to t- tell me? He's like, no, this is a real live grandma. And I had the crust. I was like, damn, if that crust ain't good. Like that's a crust I want to eat because they had they had like – they had coated the top right. It had a little bit of sugar. It had crusted. It was beautiful. Like it was cooked all the way through. It was actually flaky. It was like – I think that was the only pie I gave a five out of five. When, on the chart that we had to for sign the, off, for the, yeah, where for you the, were like, would you give this to someone with no like questions asked? I said the pie cross, yes. Yeah, you know? yeah. Those guys got hosed. They got nothing. <laughs> they got they got rippity doodah. They didn't even. They got honorable nothing. They got hosed mainly because I was sitting there trying to sift through my freaking papers when it was going on, and like we were confused over who, you know which team was. I'm sorry, Grandma's pie people cooking with calipers. My fault. <laughs> My fault. My fault. All right. So uh, let's go on to a quick question we had last week from a reader about gluten-free. Nigel Olson wrote in, Hey, Dave and Nastasha, because he didn't know you were going to be on. Uh, I love your show. I've been a listener since day one here in Napier, New Zealand, North Island, East Coast, right by the Pacific Ocean. And I've been an avid follower of your work. Um, you guys seem the logical people to ask. Could you help me come up with a gluten-free uh, uh, issue? I guess I mean solution. Solution, right? Not the solution. issue. Yeah, solution. 
I plan on making profiteroles, cream puffs, eclairs, that sort of thing, for sale at our local farmer's market. I'd like to have a gluten-free option available, but I'm not sure what flour alternative would have the gluten-type strength to sustain the shoe pastry's expansion during baking. Now, shoe pastry is interesting because it's pre-cooked, yes. right? And so you get, to, you get to mess around a lot more with stuff with the shoe pastry than you would otherwise, right? Uh, are you in New Zealand? No, we're not. But you know what really works with the shoe pastry is if you use a blend of different rice flours. So you're going to have to use a blend of brown rice and also white glutinous rice to kind of get that um, sticky dough. Um, I would say probably... The same thing, though? Like like cook butter and then beat yep. the egg? Blend in your rice flours. I would probably test around 50% of both white and brown rice and then um, and use it as weight with a parachu pastry uh, recipe. That's what I would say. And it's going to be okay? It's not going to have that weird like look-see-through rice thing? It will, but, you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head without going into, you know, di- the, the formulation of Cup for Cup too heavily, if... If it is just for pastry flour, I have seen rice flour blends work well because you're able to cook it, and then it it has enough um, of that starchy quality will will roll into a ball. And because there is enough steam, it will steam up, and you you want that hollow center. So I would say rice flour would be the best bet for the easiest. You know, you don't right. have to try it out, but I'm sure that I'm sure like people who write into this show, they don't want easy. If you're going to do difficult, would your stuff work well in a shoe pastry application? Absolutely. Actually, if you look. Up cup for cup um, shoe pastry. People have done several different variations of recipes using this. Right. So, but your stuff not in New Zealand. No. Sorry. No. no. Um, well, anywho, so yes, it can be done. And what and the you know one of the things that you, like the benef- the benefits you have is like one of the more difficult things I'm told about working with uh, you know non wheat flours is the is the fact that the doughs don't cohere so well, but because you're going to cook the crap out of it beforehand, you win. Yeah, I think shoe pastry will be, it's going to be an easier one to figure out with rice flours, definitely. What would you add to it to have it not be so ricey? That's the thing. Yeah, you're right. Um, You know, I would definitely add a little bit of cornstarch to give it more of that filler, you know, but you're going to need the most of it as the body is going to be the rice. Now, when people are doing this stuff at home, do they, they try to add stuff that's got, like, a little more of that nuttiness, right? But then they, what do they add? They add, like, buckwheat or something? But buckwheat doesn't act right, right? No, buckwheat doesn't act right. You know what I, uh, I like to do a lot, too, is to toast the flour. You really are able to taste that that nutty flavor from it. Yeah. 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 So dope in a little bit of the corn. But he's not going to need any of this other stuff like tapioca. He's not going to need that stuff. No, just because you're going to cook the starches and it's going to be already such a hard like glob you know you're gonna you're gonna be able to get that without having to use tapioca potato anything else that's gonna cause it to retract right yeah potato super swell uh the now the the other thing is for the for the rice flours can you can just get brown rice flour the so this is the difficult part um when it comes to gluten-free flours or flours in general there are so many different variations of one type of brown rice you know you could get pre-gelatinized you can get certain different grains you know the the starch structure you know from crop to crop it will change you know and so you that's that's what's going to be really difficult sourcing you know and um 
it's going to be it's hard for me to say like one specific is going to be better than the other right now right when also like you know for instance like not harping on them but like bob's red mills uh like like their their rice flour i think i've had a package of that once and it feels totally different from the stuff i buy you know in chinatown which is like a powder it's almost like rice it's almost like starch it's so powdery well what i noticed is so that was one of the flours that we tested with um cover cup originally and the asian flours they go through a different process so they soak the grains and then they mill it so that really produces um a, a definitely a different flower that has a little more moisture content and it performs completely differently from like American starches because we don't go through that process here. Yeah, because also like I've had terrible luck with rice, like grinding your own rice, but oh my god, it's horrible! Like, it's do just you like, actually do it? I try it. Yeah, like, <laughs> back when I, you know, back when I, you know, people, you know, whatever, I try anything once, but like grinding that stuff, it's just like it's like little pelletous nightmares. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't. It's not. Uh, I've actually haven't had any good luck milling my own uh, wheat flour either. I mean, I have a, I have a, you know, a grain mill, but it's I don't really like it very much. And like the really coarse, the really coarse, uh, like whole wheat, it's like, it's like just a killer. Like, yeah, you need that. I mean, you need that intense equipment to be able to support that grind. Yeah, I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, I love whole wheat flour, but I'm not the stuff that I make. No, no offense to me. No offense to me. Um, wait, so Jack is telling me we're already Jack hosed? Says we're done. We're already hosed? Yep. Oh. Oh, man. All right, well, listen. Uh, we were pre-taped this week, so I swear, Rob, next week I will talk. Do you like fiddleheads, ferns? Yes. Did you know, this is very strange, but so the fiddlehead fern that we eat is ostrich ferns, right? So we don't eat bracken. Although apparently in Asia, many people eat bracken, and people have eaten bracken in, in the U.S. for millennia. You know, Native Americans have eaten bra- bracken, different kind of fern. Sounds like, don't care. Uh, but like the, uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, bracken has some well-known, um, has some well-known carcinogens in it. Like the most well-known is, I can't pronounce it, but it's like taquilicide from something like this, right? And in fact, some people think that this may, like consumption, high consumption of bracken fern might be the reason why there is, everyone's looking to figure out why more people get esophageal and stomach cancer in Korea, let's say, or at, you know, places around there. And uh, so a lot of, you know, some people have pegged it on like the inordinate amount of kimchi that's consumed. But then some people are like, Hey, how about the bracken? Like we all know that bracken, you know, has cancer-causing agents in it. But I don't think it's that readily eaten that much in high volume where it would affect it. I don't know because I, I heard it was because like the stomach cancer. It was a lot to do with alcohol consumption. You think? Yeah, because um, I think it's the population eighty percent aren't able to consume. Uh, they don't have the enzyme to break down alcohol, and so they still consume it, and that's also contributing to the high rate. Right. So the pain, the the pain about it is right that 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 there you get two copies of the gene, right? Mm-hmm. So like most uh, Caucasian style folk, like myself, have two copies of the stuff that you know for the alcohol dehydrogenase and can break down alcohol like nobody's business, right? Then you have like a whole, uh, you know, a whole like a- Asian consort of people who have no copies. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are going to go bright red yep. when they're drinking, right? And then you have people who have one copy that don't go bright red. This is mm-hmm. the research I read. They don't go bright red, so they consume alcohol, but they're more likely to get damaged, like yeah. having cancers and stuff. So yeah. it's like that middle ground where you have one copy where it's like Dangerville. I wonder if it's the same because also the Irish population also because it's the dilation of your, your cat 
capillaries where that's why you're turning red. But um, I wonder if it affects different cultures as well. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I will try to research more of the Bracken stuff. But the ostrich fern, strangely, just in the past 10 years, people have had these weird food poisonings happen from undercooked fiddleheads. Uh, real ones, ostrich ferns, but n- nobody knows why. And so uh, the good news, Rob, is is that, is that if you were going to get poisoned, it's not a cancer thing. You would have gotten poisoned within about 12 hours. But uh, So you're good. Uh, but, yeah, we, people do recommend that you cook your fiddleheads, uh, like overcook them, in fact, like way overcook them. But I'm going to look into it more, and I have a lot more information I can get to you next week on. And uh, and unfortunately, I thought we would have t- uh, time to get to get Ken and Gramercy because he had a chewy crust problem with his pizzas. And we could talk about that because I think, you know, one of the issues I think people, you know, do you know, like when I was growing up, everyone, all they worried about with, with flour was protein content, right? Mm-hmm. No one was worried about the way it was milled, the milling fractions of it, and like how the hydration is affected by how the flour is milled. But anyway, we're going to have so to. So important for uh, bread flour. But you know what's a quick solution? Go buy cup for cup pizza. Oh, <laughs> boom. And with that, we'll have to leave it. Cooking issues. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.